you're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads connect us to history and heritage? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, first-time novelist, author of An Ordinary Wonder, Buki Papillon kicks off the conversation. After the break, Charles Lickman discusses The Sword of David. Buki Papillon, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. There are two ways I approach anytime I sit down with a writer. The first is the story inside the covers of the book. But second also fascinates me, the story outside the covers of the book. So tell us a little about yourself. What are your earliest memories about growing up in Nigeria? Oh, wow. Um, I'm one of those very strange people that has a very long um, memory. Um, I actually can remember all the way, I think, back to when I was four and maybe even three. (laughs) So my earliest memories, I think, would be um, because we lived in Lagos. Um, I was born in Lagos and then we moved to Kaduna, which is all the way up north. Um, And so um, we moved to Lagos when, when I was two. But I have really clear memories of sitting on the beach in Lagos as a very, very little child and the, and the waves coming up to me and almost feeling like the waves were going to carry me away. So that is, I think, literally my first memory. And then I have so many. I mean, I, I did not leave Nigeria till after I um, finished university. So I had a long time to grow up there. And um, I mean... I think I still live there, even though I've been away for so many years, because then I went to live in the UK and then I moved here to um, to the US. So, but um, I, I still feel like a part of me always lives in Nigeria. Yeah, I, I can understand that. You can never totally divorce yourself from where you came from, no matter where, where you end up. I'm going to mention a few names. One of the mm-hmm. benefits of doing what I've been doing for many decades is the people I get to sit across from, or in this case, we're doing a Zoom interview. And I did a library program more than a few years ago with Lisa Fugard. And what fascinated me is her father is considered one of the greatest South African writers of all time, Athel Fugard, uh, Master Harold and the Boys. And right now he's in his 80s. Another person I just learned about is also in his 80s from your home country, Wal Soenka. And after 48 years... He has a new novel coming out. You're shaking your head in affirmation. Tell us about him. I just learned about him, and he shows up twice in your book. So I learned a lot just from referencing him and how you weave him into the story because it's really interesting. Oh, thank you. Yes, I thought that. Gosh, yeah, I remember reading um, reading that so many years ago in school. Um, I cannot remember the exact title. But, um, Wale Shoyinka is, um, for me, he, I mean, for many people, for the whole world. He's, he's such a literary giant. He's been writing um, for so long, um, and there's such a massive um, tradition of Yoruba writing that has sprung up from so many of us who grew up reading his words and um, basically absorbing his um, his view of, the, of, of being a Yoruba person and, um, and just shedding the shackles of colonialism, getting rid of all those things that are not, um, Yoruba that were imposed on Yoruba people. And so um, I do mention him twice in my book. I mean, um, his poetry is incredible. Um, in, in, in somewhere in the book, I believe that I compare his poem Abiku yes. um, with that of um, John Pepe Clark um, Becaderemo, who is um, a poet as well. And, um, and and how they, they treat this very essential aspect of um, of Nigerian cosmology, which is the idea of the child who dies and is reborn again and again to the same mother, because that child is a spirit that has friends in the spirit world and is forced through the gates into existence and longs for nothing more than to go and join their um, friends on the other side. So, um, for example, Walesho Inka's Abiku poem is, it's literally Abiku saying, look, this is me, this is, here I am, this is how I exist, and I don't care if that upsets all of you, but um, this is my nature. 
And then um, John Pesa Kwaksapiku is saying, the mother is pleading with the child, oh, please stay, please stay, my body is tired. And, and it's just the beauty of the difference between of, of the approach to um, this whole idea between the two giants of Nigerian writing. But yes, Walashoinka, um, he has a new book coming out after many years. I cannot wait to get my hands on it. It comes out on the 26th, I believe, of September. Yep, yep. You know, it's um, – I'm going to mention one of their names because I interviewed her years ago. And she shows up in the back of the book, the, the people that you acknowledge. And oh. she's, a, she's a unique writer, and her book titles are different than any other book titles I've ever come across. Lori Foose. Lori Foose! Yes. Fuse. Oh, hi, Lori, if you're listening. Gosh, I'm so excited. Okay. Lori Foose. Lori Foose um, was one of my mentors, dearly beloved. Um, mentors at Lesley University where I got my MFA from Um, and she writes like no other person. Her books are like nothing else. I mean um, she sees the world through such unique Laurie eyes and um, I so I love I love reading her work and of course she was my mentor. She taught me so much so, uh, yeah, well, that's amazing that you know Laurie. <laughs> yeah, and I miss her. We, we uh, lost touch her many years ago. So if you do talk to her, please tell her I said hello because I still respect her writing style and talent. Uh, permit me. I'm going to take some people behind the curtain. Now, I try, and I, I almost do it 100%. I want to read everything before I sit down for a conversation. But if I do a Google search, and I did a Google search on you, I didn't look at it. I do not want to know what you're going to say when we have this conversation. So I just want to put that out there. I want to keep it fresh because I'm, I'm assuming you've had some great interviews and I could just sit there and watch the videos of you, but I didn't want to. I want to keep this for the first time between you and I. So I want to reference one of the book going back in my past as an interview. It's also a first-time novelist named Darren Strauss. And Darren wrote a book called Chang and Ang about the original Siamese twin. It was a novel. And it fascinates me about the connection between twins. Now, these are Siamese twins. They're as connected as you possibly can be. But your book is really about twins. You want to take it from there and explain how this, in my mind, is the heart of the book, this relationship. Ah, thank you. Yes, um, so when... Oh, when I first heard Dr. Lauren's voice in my head, um, she essentially, because uh, I've been asked, oh, did I have to figure out if Otto was a twin or if Otto Lauren was, and it, literally she told me, this is my name, this is who I am, and I have a twin sister, and this is her name. Her name is Wura. Because this happens sometimes for writers where a, a, a character just arrives literally fully formed in your head, and they tell you exactly who they are. And so right from the get-go, Otto Lurin was a twin. And um, and twinship in Yoruba culture is a really big thing right. because um, we have the most incidents of twins in the whole world, um, Yoruba people. Um, and also um, there is a place called Ibora, um in Yoruba land, which has four times the amount of twins as the rest of Yoruba land. So whenever you go to Ibuara, all you see is twins everywhere. Um, and so um, twins in Nigeria have their own deity that it's called Orishai Beji. And when a mother has twins, um, traditionally, I mean, people have moved away to a great extent in Nigeria from traditional religious um, um, norms and, and ways of being to um, sort of a more um, Christian-centric way of being. But um, the Orishai Beji, when a woman had uh, twins, she had to take them to the Babalawo, who is the traditional healer, right. who will then bless the twins and, um, and, and, and tell her what their purpose was in life. I just came across a phrase I didn't know anything about. I came across it because I was watching a, a TV show, 
on one of the cable channels. And the phrase came from Native Americans called Two Spirits. Are you familiar with that and what it represents? Because explain that to my audience. It's new to me, and I can see you, so you're shaking your head in the affirmative. So kind of tell us what that really means, and does that play into your narrative of your book, An Ordinary Wonder? Uh, yeah, so two-spirit, I've, I've heard of that. Um, I know that that is a, a Native American um, 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 belief. Um, if I were to look at that from a Yoruba lens, I would say that it, it is that idea that um, twins come into the world as a pair, of, as one spirit that has been divided into two. Right. And they always want to be together. They always need to be together. And so... Um, in an ordinary wonder, for example, there is a place where we get to learn that um, when one twin dies, it is believed that the mother has to make an image of the of, of that dead twin and then feed it and clothe it and treat it like it's a real child. You will see um, in, in old Yoruba pictures, if you looked at, um, um, uh, if you went to look for photos from the from like the 1950s and 60s, when people were still carrying out these practices a lot, you'd see women with little um, carved statues tied to their backs like real children. And those were mothers who had lost a twin baby. So they had to put it on their back, think to it, do everything, so they could persuade their surviving twin um, to leave, to stay, to not follow their, um, because they always call Taiwan Kende, to not follow their sibling to the heavenly world. I had a nice lunch a couple of days ago over the weekend with a writer who's just in the beginning stages of trying to create a novel. And I thought about where she's at. She gave me a sample of the prologue of, of her book and the epilogue. And, and I started to think, you know, when you read, there are words on the page. There's a certain rhythm to that. But I wonder if – and I wonder if you have your book handy because I think what's so interesting – is to hear the words spoken out loud, both for an audience in a sense, but also for yourself. So when you sit down, do you say the words out loud or do you have a first reader that will read the book and you can kind of listen to the the rhythm and the the pacing? I do have, I have had many people help me with this book. I mean, it's all in my acknowledgement. I've had many people who um, read it at various stages. I mean, this book took a long time to become what it is. It started out as a com- almost completely different book. Um, it had a different ending. It had um, it had different points of view. There was the mother's point of view. There was the twin sister's point of view. But then, um, as as the as it evolved, and as other people read it, and as I even I do this thing where. Um, I read to myself sometimes, okay. just so I can, like you said, hear yeah. the rhythm of my own words. And um, at some point, it became clear that um, in order for this book to work, all the other points of view and all the other, and it all had to come from one point of view because it was Otto Loring's voice that was so consistent in my ear. And that meant that this book had to completely come from that voice. Do you have, can you give us a, a sample of, of that? Can you do you have the book handy? Can you give us a little section from the book? Oh, that's beautiful. Because this is what I've been looking forward to the whole time since a couple of days ago and in yesterday. I just want to hear the words in the book spoken by you. This is just a small snippet because I think the audience is going to really want to hear what how you sound reading your own words. An ordinary wonder. A person who sells eggs should not start a fight in the market. Chapter one. Now, 1991, age 14. My name is Otto Loring. I've been called monster. Within dark valleys of flesh, I defy the given. A snake curled in upon itself, two in one mythical and shunned. Yet in that magical place between worlds in the realm where the great mother gives milk to her offspring, I become like a goddess. There in words unspoken, my voice is heard. I often wish I could take Wura, my sister, with me to that place where I truly come alive. But I cannot because Wura is normal, so it would be death. Wura and I are twins. Like all other Yoruba twins that have ever been born, we should be called Taiwo and Kende, the one who came first and the one who lagged behind. Even in this, our natural names our parents kept us apart, Otolori, one who walks a different path, and Wuraola, a wealth of gold. Wura is everything to our mother who will never have any other children because she is the woman who birthed the unspeakable. And my father has no desire to sire any more monsters. 
Here in Nigeria, the road ends at my secret. But America, they say, is a land where wonders are created and the wondrous is made ordinary. Now that I have wedged one foot onto that path, I am determined to make it all the way. Because if I do, perhaps I too can become an ordinary wonder. Here's a question I would ask you based on my reading of the book. He reminds me of Job. All the trials and tribulations at, are thrown at Otoloran, and it seems like for a good portion of the book, kept down, kept down. A lot of tragedies, physical violence, uh, verbal abuse, and you can say, how much more can this person take? Now, uh, no spoiler alerts, but I, I, I tell a lot of Read the book all the way to the end because we're going to pick it up. You're going to want to find out how everything happens. So there is redemption at the end, but it takes a long, long, long time to get there. You want to follow up on that? Uh, yes, I have heard. Yeah, so many readers have told me that, um, it, yes, it was a long, long way to redemption. And um, at some point, I remember someone physically emailing me to say, I, I literally cannot take any more. I need some light. I need right, some light right. at this point. And I, what was really ironic was um, that person was literally at exactly the point where things take a turn for the better. So I, I, I did, yes, I was like, okay, just keep going. Um, so it was funny to me that the person literally got to breaking point at exactly where I had written the book to be breaking point for the reader. And um, yes, um, Otolori goes through a lot. And um, a lot of what um, she experiences does not come from a void. I mean, these are things that um, it, it, it is a compendium of all sorts of experiences, true. But um, there are so many things in there that come from real life. For example, the whole idea of child witches in Nigeria has been a very terrible scourge that um, thankfully is being addressed and, um, and, and hopefully um, is, going, is, is going to end. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. My guest is the author of An Ordinary Wonder, Buki Papayan. So th- some cultures believe in a spirit animal, a protector. Otto Lauren has not just one, but multiple protectors. Sister Angelica, a mentor at IS school where he's boarded, Ironically, and I don't want to give too much away because there's a great scene where he's walking the street and a jeep pulls up and his father's mother on that side of the family, his grandmother, makes him come inside because he's afraid someone's going to harm him as the jeep pulls up. And she tells him what I call a lot of secrets and lies. And that particular scene adds such richness to the book about the path, ultimately, destiny out of Lauren is going to be traveling on. I, I wanted I wanted that to be I wanted the rich Yoruba um, traditions and cosmology and religions to be very much reflected in this book. I wanted I wanted that intergenerational um, I wanted to sh- I wanted to talk a little I wanted the book to address the, the matter of intergenerational trauma as well as intergenerational caring the way that um, a lot of things are passed on to us that we're not even aware of, um, you know, from, from when we're born. We're born into a family, into a society, um, into a place that already begins to influence us. And these influences will carry us through everything that we are going to go through in this life. So for Tolori, um, she came to a place of understanding um, in that particular scene that you mentioned um, of, of everything sort of all sort of all practically colliding. It was a moment of everything that had happened in her life that she'd been experiencing that all seemed disparate, all sort of came together and collided. And suddenly there was a moment of illumination um, is what I would call that scene. <laughs> I want to go back. The, the book is staring me in the face. And the title <laughs> once again, An Ordinary Wonder. My first reflection was, it's not an ordinary book, and there's so much wonder inside the covers. So, you know, when you go into a bookstore, it's almost a point of purchase. You look for the writer's name if the writer's familiar, or you've read a review. New York Times mentioned your book, by the way. Congratulations. And also the title is a point of purchase. So share with us for the writers out there the thought process between actually putting a title 
on a book? Wow, this is such a great question. Um, the title of a book can be, for a writer, can either be a straightforward thing or one of the most vexatious things that they have to deal with. Um, because a title carries so much weight and um, people have been known to buy books just from looking at the title, um, just because the title pulls you in so much. And so An Ordinary Wonder has had an, uh, it, it had, it went through several iterations. It went, it was, it was so many titles. Some of them I would absolutely be very embarrassed <laughs> to say because um, I was just feeling my way through to what does this book want to be called? So I had, at one point, I had a, literally a small notebook. Right. And I kept writing titles as they occurred to me. But then what happened was I realized the title was already right there because you see that passage that I read? Yes. It ends with, I hope I too can become an ordinary wonder. And it was like, oh, it's been there all along, staring me in the face. This is the title of this book. So that, there it was. Now, you've, you've ended up in America. I believe you live up in Massachusetts now. Is that correct? Yes. And I hear yeah. you're having, still having your time adjusting to the winters, but none of us like the winters in the Northeast anyway. <laughs> and I'm a popular reference because there's a lot of popular cultural references in this book about what's going on, American programs and comic books and everything else. So I kind of appreciated that. And that's a nice touch about what happens in America can go overseas and overseas comes back to America. So Eddie Murphy had this movie called Coming to America. What is? Oh my goodness! Yeah, so why do uh, and fictional African country, by the way, and there's also a sequel out there, I believe, which I haven't seen. But I love Eddie Murphy. I think he's just a genius at what he does as a comedian and as an actor. So why did Otto Lauren want to end up being educated in America? Wow! Yeah, that is. Um, this is such an interesting question. I think it is really less that. Um, a, 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 I, I, how do I put it? It's less that it is specifically America, as um, much as it is a desire to end up in a place where she can find her people, where she can find the people who will um, sort of um, understand who she is. Because this is the 1980s um, and 90s Nigeria. Otto is an intersex person. People do not even know where to start from with what is intersex, who is this person, what is going on. Otto Lauren's whole journey in part is to find out who she is as opposed to who everyone, and including um, the church and the mother and everyone who they are saying she is. So, um, she, so she has this encounter, as you mentioned, at some point in the, no in the novel where someone mentions, oh, America is a place where people sort of know maybe a bit more about who you are than um than over here so she has that desire to go to america as, um as, as a in a way to find out who she is a place where she can find her people um and and you know america is as a promised land is something that to this to this day continues to attract um immigrants from the world over for some people that image is really tarnished um with all sorts of events recent and but america still remains a place i think in many people's imaginations where there's a corner somewhere where you can be you. You will find the people who are your tribe. I think that is what it is. That's well said. Once again, my guest is Buki Papayan. Her new book, her debut novel, is called An Ordinary Wonder. I want to go back to Wale again, Soenka, because yeah. he, correct me if I'm wrong, and I've been wrong many, many times before, so feel free. In the 1950s, I think he formed an organization called Confraternity, and it seems like it is transmuted to something much worse and much more dangerous. It reminds me of street gangs throughout all over America. And, and the street gangs are very, very territorial. But you have two characters. One is Bayo, B-A-Y-O, and the other one is Elijah. And they are important opponents of this story in terms of what's going on and – well, I don't want to give too much away, but they belong to what I call rival gangs, and it ends up in a situation that's going to shock the reader, but makes a lot of sense in terms of driving the narrative along. So am I on the right path with this? You are, mostly, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, Walesha Inca did start um, confraternities um, in 
in Nigerian universities, the idea was to have this thing which was a bit more like the Greek houses in universities in America. Right. Unfortunately, due to um, all sorts of political influences and and so on, they, they changed into something else, something a whole lot more deadly and a whole lot more terrible. And that continues, unfortunately, till today. And But I believe that that is something that is um, a result of prevailing societal situations, economic and societal situations, more than any anything that is um, fundamentally, unfortunately, um, evil about the confraternities themselves. Um, I think that um, those brotherhoods and sisterhoods could have evolved into so much more, such something a lot more helpful and less uh, a harmful thing, the harmful thing that they turned into. And so, yes, um, without one, without giving away too much, yes, that is a big influence in, in, in the book. Now, each of us have our own definition of what is success. For me, if I'm reading a book and it's 3 o'clock in the morning and I'm still thinking about what I just read, and then when I put the book back down, and it stays with me and stays with me. And I'll, I'll put into the conversation a reader in general. Do you consider that as a writer a success? That after the book is put down on the shelf or wherever it's going to go back to the library, that it still stays with you? That, that for me as a writer is that is the very definition of success. It's when – because um, books, as somebody said, are a form of telepathy. Right. It is literally from my mind to your mind. I have downloaded stuff from inside my head into your head. And if I have successfully done that and you're still thinking about it so much longer after you put it down, then that's amazing. I had someone recently tell me that they saw they were, they were in the market and they saw someone and kept thinking, I know this person, I know this person. And they got back home and they were thinking, why, how, why, do, why do I know that person from? And they realized what had happened was that a character from my book who looked at, had in their head looked exactly like yeah. that person. So, <laughs> then so it, yes, that is success. All right, so <laughs> we, we have two minutes left. And, and I just wonder about – all right, here's, I'm going to be very honest. When, when the podcast is over and the recording is done and I get back in my car and I drive home, I start to do a self-evaluation. Did I ask the right question? Did I ask a mediocre question? Did I ask a question that never should have been asked? So this is the chance in two minutes or less, no pressure, we can go a little bit longer. If you could interview yourself in terms, did I leave something out? And if I did, what should have been the question I should have asked you? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Um, I've never heard that particular question before. Um, I think what would I want to talk about Oh, wow. That, I'm a bit thrown by that question now. I'm trying to think of what, what am I going to, um, how could I best answer that question? I think I'll talk about proverbs because that is one of the things that drives the book so much. And I think um, Yoruba proverbs are such a rich source of inspiration right. and of wisdom. Right. And I think that... Um, Really, people should pay more attention to them. Um, I, I think people don't pay enough attention to the distilled wisdom within Yoruba proverbs. And um, I think people should read them as much as they read the Quran or the Bible or whatever other religious text they um, read every day. Um, because uh, I, I, I deliberately use proverbs in the book um, to help Otolori when she has moments where she doesn't know what to do or where to turn to. She will literally flip the book open, her proverb book, and try and ask questions, almost like using some sort of divination book, really. Right, right. Well, I also remember that she also got access to the Hidden Stash Library for romance novels, too. So oh, we, 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 we won't give that away. But I got to tell you quite <laughs> honestly, Buki, um, an ordinary wonder, there is a tremendous amount of wisdom in this book. And I believe, I really do believe, that books can take us to where our bodies physically can't go. It's almost like a time machine, in a sense. So for me, you did that exceedingly well. And I want to thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for all your brilliant questions. I have really enjoyed this. Thank you. 
All right. After the break, Charles Lichtman joins us. His novel's called The Sword of David. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Joining us right now is Chuck Littman, the author of The Sword of David. So, Chuck, what I like to do, and I do this in almost every segment, and I'm being a little bit boring, but it's just something I like to do. For me, there are two stories. The first story is inside the covers of the book. The second story, and sometimes it's even more interesting, is about the writer himself. Talk a little bit about your life, where you grew up, and what brought you to this point. Because I saw some of your bio. You have a fascinating life. But I, and this is your second novel, because your first novel is also um, prescient, in a sense, about what's happening in the world today in terms of January 6th. So let's just talk about who you are and where you came from. Sure. Well, well actually— um, I would say that there were significant events in my life when I was younger that molded me into who I am in terms of wanting to write this particular book. I grew up in Gary, Indiana, which was a rough and tumble steel town just outside Chicago. It was blue collar and it was heavily anti-Semitic. Yeah. And uh, to give you some context, uh, my family was the only Jewish family on the street family to the left were um, uh, f- from Lebanon. This is 19, we're talking like uh, late 1950s, early 1960s. So not too far after the formation of Israel, they made it clear the moment they moved in. The uh, Mr. Elisha told my father that he hated Jews. That didn't go over big. The family on the right, quite literally, Mr. Keatsman fought for the Germans in World War II. Right. So there I am surrounded by an Arab family on one side, uh, a German family on the other. I had anti-Semitic incidents all through high school. My first was in first grade. I got beat up probably 100 times until I learned self-defense. And at that point, then they realized they couldn't mess with me any longer. I had anti-Semitism imposed on me when I went to college in Indiana, I was a freshman when the Yom Kippur War broke out, and my right. room was completely trashed. And uh, but equally important is that my whole family was wiped out in the Holocaust, except for one uncle who survived Auschwitz. My uncle Oscar, he went to Israel, uh, and his story is almost exactly like that of Exodus. All right, and uh, we had gotten wind that. Oscar was going to be in the Munich Olympics as a boxing coach. And of course we all know um, what happened in Munich. Yep. We didn't know until after the fact that Oscar was okay. In fact, as it turned out, he didn't even go, but the events of the Munich Olympics and the things that I had been exposed to personally up to that point is what inspired me to write to become an expert in terrorism. I've been studying it literally since 1972 in depth every day and to write this particular book. So uh, it's been building up for a long time. That's kind of a long answer, but that's really uh, in terms of this interview, the essence of who I am. You know, over the course of my career, I have interviewed Holocaust survivors. Uh, Thomas Blatt, one of the last living survivors at the time of Sobibor or death camp. So I, I have personal interactions with that. When I was growing up living in Bayside, Queens, I was maybe five or six years old. One of the people living in what they call a garden complex, garden apartments, had the tattoo numbers on, on his arm. And, of course, as a young kid, I said, what's that? And he said he got it from the concentration camp. When I, heard, I only heard the word camp. So even as a young kid, we weren't totally aware you know, of what was going on. But later in life, we became very, very aware. So in a sense, where are you taking us with the sword of David? It surprised me with how you set the whole book up. You know, it's not a popcorn book. I know what you did, and we'll talk about that. 
But you have done a lot of research, and I do remember one of the interviews I did in the past was with Frank Shorter, the marathon runner. Frank was there in 1972 running the marathon. In fact, they wanted to cancel the rest of the games, and they said, no, let's go on. But the movie Munich is a very powerful movie, and that's what that whole time frame, Black September and everything else, resonated with me in the past. And I think you do touch upon that in a sense also about what's going on in terms of geopolitics in the world today. Long-winded, but tell us about the setup of the book, The Sword of David. Well, uh, I knew what I wanted the ending to be. And what I had to do is figure out means to get there. So it wouldn't be necessarily plausible because under the global scenario of what we see with terrorism and relations in the Middle East, uh, I just don't see the ending, and I don't want to give it away, happening presently. So right. I needed to create a circumstance where there would be something that everybody from all camps, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, would look up and say, uh, no pun intended, oh my God, because I think it would take something cataclysmic, something just totally unexpected to get all the parties to the table to say that they wanted to change the dynamic of what's actually going on in the Middle East. So to do that, what I can tell those that are listening in is that the book involves the search, the finding of the Ark of the Covenant after a terrorist attack at the wall, and then a search for the Ten Commandments. Right. And in, in between, there's some other spiritual things that happen. Uh, I'm very proud and pleased that uh, countless, numerous reviewers have, have said that my book is a cross between the Da Vinci Code and Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, except that it's not a popcorn ending for sure. It's a serious book throughout, although it's a lot of action. And the ending particularly, I think, will get people's attention and give them pause for thought. That was what I wanted to accomplish, was to open a dialogue. There's another connection with the characters in this book for me. Uh, I read almost all of Daniel Silva's book. And, of course, Gabriel Alon is his primary character. And I think Gabriel Alon and Chaim Klein almost separated by birth in terms of their passion and defense of their home country. And both have, um, in a sense, darkness in their lives in terms of some violent acts they've been involved with. And this fascinated me because I, I am told you're not supposed to mention other writers and other books when you're talking to a writer. I don't agree with that. I think these are a frame of reference, putting you in with Silva and putting your character, your primary character, with Gabriel Lahn, who I think is a multidimensional character, and so is Chaim Klein. Do you have issues with that, if I put it that way? No. Um, you know, I, I have read spy novels from all of the names that people recognize. And of course, that means that I've read a lot of Silva, not all of his books, but most of them. And I see differences with Chaim Klein between Gabriel Leon. I think that Chaim Klein's a little bit more of a head case, frankly. All right. But um, but I, I'm honored that a few that more than a few people had said they see the exact same uh, resemblance in in terms of the characters. I certainly never in my mind tried to mold it that way. In fact, I wanted to go the opposite way. My the hero in my First novel, The Last Inauguration, was a guy that was seriously flawed. And, um, but I'll, I'll take it. I, I, I admire Silva's work tremendously. And I think Kahim Clyde's a great character. And you're going to see more of him. All right. So, well, it's obvious because when you, somebody picks the book up and reads it, it's, it's, it's the beginning of a something. You put it in a sense like that. The Age of Darkness is not over, it's just the beginning of the battle against the age of darkness and the apocalypse. So once I read that, I'm saying, sign me up for the next book because I want to see where you take all these, all these characters. Now, is it true that you have had communications because he's in your first book and it shows up mentioned briefly in this book? Somebody was called Carlos the Jackal. Yeah. In fact, um, on my wall behind me, it's just outside the screen. I see our letters that I have with Carlos the Jackal, he had agreed to give me his first ever interview in 1998 while he was in prison in France. And at the last moment, the French attorney general 
got an ex parte injunction, non-appealable, preventing me from showing up with NBC and Esquire magazine in tow. Uh, and uh, the interview got canceled. But um, and now this is I wasn't going to bring it up because I wanted to hold this back for a few more weeks. But literally just in the last 10 days, uh, I've been back in communication with his lawyer and he has agreed again for me to come to France. He's still in prison, but we have circumstances worked out where I will have uh, three full days to interview him at length. Right. I literally have right here. You can see this book. Yeah, I remember that. And, and I'm going back through so that I could be completely re-educated on him. And I'll be doing his interview in November in France. So in a sense, in a general sense, even beyond the covers of the book, how much of your worldview, and I think we kind of touched upon that, but I'd like you to further go along with that, is reflected in the book. You have a worldview. We want, we're not going to give the ending away, but you give us, in a sense, a roadmap for bringing all the parties together. I believe, and I, because the Middle East, Jews and Palestinians and Arabs are Semitic people. They come and they basically believe in some of the same things, whether it's the Bible or the Koran or whatever. There's such strong connections there. And I've seen what the country of Israel has done in terms of technology. And I realized that if the borders were opened up and everybody was accessible to what could be done, that region of that part of the Middle East could be special in terms of technology development to the benefit of all people. And I think Maybe we have the same mindset, but I think that's a great tragedy of what's going on with the Palestinians and the Israelis. I think you talk to the average person who's not been brutalized, and they want, they want an ending to this. They want some hope. They want to get out of the, quote-unquote, what I would call the Palestinian ghetto. And, and Israel would open up a lot of things. When somebody is hurt in the Palestinian territories, West Bank and Gaza, a lot of times they end up in Israeli hospitals to be treated. Absolutely. In, in fact, um, you know, I my research, and I think you've noted this through the whole book was extensive. I made visits to uh, every free world country that is written about. I was in London, Paris, Rome, Istanbul, and I was in Israel for this trip, uh, for this book, uh, five times. I think right. it was five times. Could have been six. And one of the things that I made a point of doing was instead of making presumptions as to what the Arab mentality was in terms of relations with Israel and the Jews, I spent a tremendous amount of time sitting in cafes and coffee shops and walking the streets of the Muslim quarter in Jerusalem, in the old city. I was in East Jerusalem countless times doing the same thing. I had a cousin that took me to Ramallah and to Hebron, where I spent full days in both. And all I did was try to find opportunities where I could approach, and I had to learn the cultural way to do it, right. approach civilians and start a conversation with them. And the conclusion that I came to was that there was a lot of unhappiness, but at the end of the day, the Palestinians wanted peace. They don't want war. They want the same thing for their families that we have for our families here in the United States and that a lot of most of the Israeli families have. They want educational opportunity. They want employment opportunity. They want better lives. They want better health care. And um, that grabbed me. So when I wrote uh, the ending to the book, and I'm, I, I got I to phrase this carefully, uh, it didn't actually reflect all of what I thought at the time, but it was a reflection of what I thought if something was to happen, this is the, about the only way it could really work because it was an issue of give and take. Yes. And a lot of things that most people uh, that are Jewish and are strong supporters of Israel, I totally get. They might say, you're off your rocker. And I also think that a lot of the Palestinians might look up and say, Oh, I don't think so. But at the end of the day, I think that it was, I'll call it like if they went back to Oslo Accords 
it was a it, what I came up with was a negotiation of something that could work for everybody. That's what I wanted to achieve. Uh, there was a TV program about the Oslo Accords, and the thing that broke the, the backlog, in a sense, was the human element of showing a picture of a, of a child or a grandchild or whatever to kind of realize you're human, we're human, and we have some commonality. So I think you – know, well, I know you understand that. It, it, let, me, let me throw something out there, which is that in the course of writing the book and in the course of learning – about the peace process and Israel, I um, reached out to Joel Singer, who now lives in Washington. Joel was the principal lead negotiator for Israel during the Oslo Accords. Right. I talked to him at length, and I've read everything that he has written, which is exhaustive. So whenever you see something on the Oslo Accords, if it was a TV show or a movie or the play or whatever, there's a Joel Singer role. And Joel told me, that when Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated, Yasser Arafat cried. Cried. Wow. Now, most of the world doesn't know that. First time I've, it's that, the first time myself, I'm hearing it. Yeah. If, if Yasser Arafat, who was the, the second biggest terrorist after Carlos the Jackal, uh, could cry after sitting at a table trying to make peace with Rabin, and learning of Rabin's death, that tells me that there is an opportunity where people can come together. So I'm Larry Davidson, and this is the podcast, Austral Periscope. My guest is Chuck Lickman. The book is called The Sword of David. I, I, I'm fascinated by mythology and folklore. So when people get into the heart of this book, the title is The Sword of David. To what degree are you playing with in the connection to King Arthur's Excalibur? That fascinated me when you made those connections. And I don't want to give a whole lot away, but everybody remembers that only one person can pull the sword out, Excalibur. And it plays into it. And it's so dramatic in this book. Then in a sense, this is Hyam's destiny. He, I, I look at him as Don Quixote. There's no windmills. But I really do look at him because he can, in a sense, the character you created, he cannot escape his destiny. Well, if, if you think about it, that sword plays a very, very significant role in the book. And there actually was a sword of David. It turned out, if my research showed, that it was originally known as Goliath's sword, and then David took it, and apparently... Uh, there's a, a mosque or a museum, I think it's in Istanbul, that claims that they have the original Sword of David. And I was in that museum, and I kind of remember it as being this tiny little thing, but it was like in perfect condition. And in reality, if there was a sword from 3,200 years ago, right. it, it wouldn't be in that kind of condition. But it was an instrument that I came up with uh, that was necessary to help wake people up. Like the Pope was woken up with that sword. Right. You know, I did an interview a while ago with Jonathan Santlow for the book called The Last Mona Lisa, which is a tremendous book. And Jonathan is a gifted writer as well as an artist. And in the book, they make there's probably multiple Mona Lisas between the real one and forgeries and everything else. This is another surprise in the book. In your book, there are multiple arcs. Now, we think, based on mythology and folklore, there's only one arc. And they're traveling all over the world. I love the scene when they first go to Ethiopia, by the way. I think that's tremendous how they get in and that's out. That's a real church. Yeah, I know. But I, that's your research. If you want to share that. But in terms of your book, it seems to be multiple arcs. And that plays into the narrative. So, you know, I did that also on purpose. And that's because in Exodus, which is where, they, where the uh, Old Testament describes how the ark is to be built, there is no prohibition against they're building more than one ark. Right. It says, this is how you build an ark. And the reality is in 586 BC, when Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, you know, destroyed the first temple, apparently the ark that Moses took with him or had built at, at Mount Sinai disappeared forever. But I mean, think about this logically. If Exodus existed, meaning the book of Exodus existed, in 585 BC, what would stop the Jews 
at their next temple from saying, we still need an ark. Take a look at Exodus. Why can't we build another ark? And of course they build another ark. And I would think that if history would have taught them anything, it would say, and uh, maybe we need a backup. And that's how I come up with the multiple arcs. But the church that I allude to in the Ethiopian chapter actually exists, and they have claimed since the time of the Queen of Sheba, who was King Solomon's wife, that the ark has been located in their possession and they won't let anybody in the building. It's a fascinating story. I learned about it from National Geographic. I mean, it's not like I found it on some dopey website or something. You know, National Geographic, I think most people find to be credible. Now, in in literature, there's something called tropes. Is the criminal uh, terrorist and mastermind, in a sense, a trope? Or in your book, um, it's not. It's somebody that you need to move the story along. But in reality, they're very dangerous people. Uh, I'd say it's more of the latter because having spent um, four decades, almost five decades studying terrorism, I believe that there are a lot of really bad people out there, like the lead villain, Omar. They, that there are, if you, if you think about what's really going on in the Middle East and in uh, like Afghanistan and Pakistan, kids are being trained to fight. It's, now it's going on in Africa too, right. from the time they're like 10 years old. Yes. This is all they know. Um, and uh, the rise of terrorism has been basically unimpeded since the late 1960s. How much is that tied into levels of education? I think of the Israelis and Israeli defense group, you know, the people that fight special forces, and they are highly educated people. I think about what's going on right now in Afghanistan with the Taliban. Some of them, a lot of them that fight are illiterate, not very well educated, but both people in terms of the Israelis and special forces who are highly educated, in a sense, terrorists, and in, in the Taliban are not highly educated, but they are both very fierce in defense of their belief systems. And that interests me, the comparisons. Yeah, and nobody's asked me that question or brought that topic up. And I think that you're spot on. And the reality is that most of that area of the world is uneducated and illiterate. And they're taught, you know, fundamentalist beliefs. I I mean, what the Taliban has been teaching its kids and now they've excluded women again is atrocious. It's, you know, it seems criminal that they should say that if somebody doesn't agree with how you, you practice your religion, they should be killed. And that's really the mindset. And then, but if you take that and you extend it out through the middle Eastern countries that surround Israel as an example, it's not much better in Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, I mean, there's not high levels of education there. So people are pro- kids are propagandized from the time they're young. They don't know better. My education at the end of the book, I raise that issue, is so critical. As a writer, in terms of creating a narrative and moving it along, did you have fun? And I, I hate to say have fun, but creating this global terrorist plan. And the way you set it up, it's kind of frightening, and I think some of it is – well, I hate when people take a book and say, well, I'm going to inform some bad guys, and they're going to take what I write and put it into action. But the plan that you create coming out of your mind, um, I paid attention to it. Well, I, I love writing, and you said fun, and it is fun to me. I mean I'm not sitting there and laughing while I'm doing it, but to me as I try to – uh, come up with the story and then research it and see what I can get to back it up because I don't like just making stuff up. Of course, there are times that you have to do that. But for the most part, I like to rely on facts and history. And I have a ball doing that. I mean, I I, I can't believe I get to do it. So, um, you know, the the prospect of how I wrote that global terrorist attack is to me not completely out of line because we've been hearing about sleeper cells located all around the world 
for decades now. And, you know, that's the concept of how they come alive in, in this particular book. You've been to Israel. I haven't, but members of my family have. My daughter was there right before she started in grad school. So just for the people who have never been to Israel, describe the emotions of being by the Wailing Wall, Temple Mount, Dome of the Rock, which is so important to the major religions throughout the world. And I'm just curious for your reaction, because I, I have not been there, but somebody who has, can you describe those feelings and emotions when you were there? Yes. Um, and, and let me start with this. I'm not religious at all. I go to temple or synagogue for the high holidays. We didn't the last two years because of COVID. Uh, I don't go for Shabbat. I don't go for any other holiday. Uh, we sort of observe we observe Passover and Hanukkah and a couple of others, but blandly. Right. And when I went to Israel, uh, it was because my first time, it was because it was a free trip with my in-laws. And it was the weirdest thing. The moment that I got to the wall, I felt drawn to it like a magnetic force. And I cannot tell you how many people have told me they've had the exact same experience. And every time I go to Jerusalem, I go to the wall multiple times and hang out there. Um, I've never really prayed. I have a problem as to accepting there's really a God that's passing judgment. Uh, yet I have said prayers at that wall. Uh, and I find it to be a really moving experience. Similarly, I have been on the Temple Mount very fortunately, because it's very hard to get up there. I've been up there about four times, including one time before the first intifada. So I was able to actually go into the Dome of the Rock right. and look down on the foundation stone. And whether you believe in the Bible or not, the Bible is this, I'll call it living piece of literature that has guided the world heavily uh, since its inception, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism all use the Old Testament as its foundational book. So when you stand there and you look down on the stone that they say, this is where Abraham was to slay Isaac. This is the stone from where Barak, Muhammad's horse, was taking him on the flight to heaven. This is the area that Jesus walked down the Mount of Olives into the Temple Mount and, and I could keep going with 20 other examples. It's really, um, it's inspiring and it's unique to every place else in the world because all this history that occurred in literally less than a square quarter mile. You know what I'm going to do? Um, that's a perfect answer to end the segment. I can go on with some inane uh, questions, but I'm not going to because you were so eloquent in describing your experiences and your reactions and your emotions. The book is called The Sword of David. Chuck Lickman is my guest. Also, I want to thank Buki Papillon. Her book is called An Ordinary Wonder. Um, both of you guys have been terrific. I want to thank both of you for your time. I Larry, appreciate thank that. you for having me. I've really enjoyed doing this. Uh, you know, anybody that's interested can go to chucklichtman.com, L-I-C-H-T-M-A-N. Find the book. It's on Amazon. It's at Barnes and Noble. It's doing really well with sales so far, and the reviews have been great. So I'm grateful that you've given me this opportunity to talk about the book and to reach out to readers. Thank you. Well, when the next book comes out, you, you will come back, I hope. You're darn right. All right, man. Thank you so much. I, I greatly appreciate your time. Thank uh, you. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special 
thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She's tired to her.